The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Welcome everybody. It's good to see such a big crowd <clears throat> on a Wednesday night, right in the middle of the work week on a school night. <laughs> My name is Shelley Graf and I'm uh, the associate director here. What does that mean? It means I share my practice sometimes in public ways like this. It also means I unload the dishwasher when it's needed, send a lot of emails, and uh, meet one-on-one -on -one with people from time to time who want to talk about practice. My name is Ayo Yatunde, and um, Shelly invited me to uh, sit with her and share with her and with you all this evening. I sit with Common Ground and also with Clouds and Water Sin Center. And um, I love this practice. So I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if anybody is here for the first time tonight. Do we have any people first time to Common Ground tonight? Raise your hands high. Don't be Yay. afraid. Yay. Welcome. 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 <laughs> Welcome. What's your name? Janelle. Hey, Janelle. Hey. And Roger. Hey, Roger. We have some program host here. Andrea is in the back raising her hand if you turn around. Yeah. There's lots of other people that have been here a lot. So if you have questions about the center or how things work or anything, you want to know how to load the dishwasher? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ask Andrea or Did anybody ask else. You? Yeah, totally. You can ask me, yeah. Or I'll. <laughs> cool. So for a while now, during these Wednesday night practice groups, all the practice groups actually, we've been exploring the topic of the Brahma Viharas. Um, and I kind of, the last time I offered some dhamma, I simplified the Brahma-viharas to one word, love. <laughs> and love might have a, a connotation that may or may not be useful to you. So you can um, take it if you like or leave it behind if you want to do that too. But mostly with, with all of these words, we are looking for the experience and not so much the conceptual understanding, right? So that meditation that Ayo just led us through, just that really connecting to the body to feel what it's like when that word, when that word is there, right? So this felt sense, and this is what the practice is all about. It's an experiential path. So this practice of mindfulness, meditation, it's all about feeling, knowing what it's like right here in this heart we can sometimes um, mistake experience for intellectual understanding, right? And in the West, we're really interested in knowing stuff <laughs> um, intellectually. But there are lots of ways to know, right? And so we really have to learn to get close to the body patiently, without force, to understand what it's like to feel and experience love, to know love, right? 
or any of the flavors of love in the Brahma Viharas. This experience of kindness, which would be metta, this experience of compassion, which is just what happens when the heart moves with pain or suffering, this experience of sympathetic joy, or what happens when the heart delights in someone else's good fortune, wisdom, happiness, or this experience of equanimity that's really about kind of the the stability that's there when love needs um, some strength, right? Equanimity can be uh, translated as this ability to stand up in the middle of all this, which that kind of goes through my mind all day long often, right? Like, oh, what is the force can I actually get to know the force of love that allows me to be in my life in moments where it's really hard to be in my life? And that strength of love... There it was. That was it. Turn that volume down. Maybe you should talk about compassion. <laughs> what happens when... Yeah, try that one. <laughs> Talk about compassion. What happens when kindness meets the yeah. nervous system that's freaking out a little? I, that's, a be, I think that's a better word. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a better word. Cool. So the force just really encouraging. I, my point was just to encourage us to get to know, to be a student of love, so that we can really understand what it means, the force, the possibility of love. So I and I were talking a week or so ago about what we might share here tonight. And she said, well, what have you been talking about? And I said, well, metta or love. And she immediately said something like, oh, that's like self selflessness. You said something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh. It just, you know, reminded me of my Christian upbringing. And I didn't have very good... I didn't, I didn't internalize that teaching in a very healthy way. I thought about selflessness like um, abandoning my own needs for somebody else's needs or something like that. What is the word? I was talking to my friend Jean Haley this, this afternoon about this, and what's the word you used? You said it in a particular way. I don't, I don't remember either. But something about like negating this abandoning myself yeah and that didn't resonate so much but you know i was willing to explore this a little bit so i've just been a student of love over the last week or so and i've just been interested in what um the experience what my experiences of kindness or love or you know any of these words that we might use to point to this experience this embodied experience of the heart that cares and all of its flavors. So I've been interested in kind of this possibility of selflessness. And what I'm finding is that there's really, when love is, when love is pure, it really doesn't have, it doesn't discriminate, right? When, and it can happen, it happens spontaneously. So for example, I was walking my dog the other day, I was at a conference in Duluth, and we found a trail, and it was early morning, and she was so happy to be out. 
she was surprised that I was going to take her for a walk that early. And she's, you know, jumping at the door and like, really, are we going now? We don't usually go now. This is a story I had for, I don't know if that's true. But we left out on the trail and she was just like, you know, squinty eyes, ears back, waggy tail, just enjoying her steps. I was like, just delighting in her happiness. And there was, in that moment, there wasn't a Shelly that needed anything from the experience. There wasn't a Shelly that even needed anything from my pup. It was just like pure, there's a purity to that experience of delight for her happiness, right? Or what I imagined was her happiness. And another, um, at another time, I was um, also, I, w- I have some God kids that I see quite often, and one of them just turned five, and she was over for a sleepover, and um, taking her nap midday, and having a hard time waking up, and it was getting later, and if parents aren't any parents in the room, you know what that's like when the nap gets long, and it starts to get closer to dinner, and then you start to worry about what's the nighttime going to be like, and all the fear sets in, like, this is going to be a night of hell, so I have to get this child up. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad, but um, she was in her bed, not wanting to wake up, and so I tapped on the door. I opened the door to let in a little noise from the house and hoping that would do the trick. It didn't do the trick. So I turned on a little music in the hallway or in my room, which was across the hallway from her, and that didn't do the trick. So then I brought the music into the room, turned it on really low, and I just lay down in the bed with her. And so I put it on a station that she enjoyed, and she and I just laid there together. I sort of talked a little bit from time to time, whispering to her. She would like nod yes or no. That was about it. She wasn't really feeling it, but she wasn't rejecting me either. And then some songs would come on that we know, and I started singing one of them, and she started singing it really softly, right? And from time to time, she would kind of roll over and nestle in my arm, get some snuggles, and then roll back away when she needed to, right? And again, that was like a moment I was really interested in that, mo- in that moment. My mind was really curious, like, oh, what is happening here that's allowing this comfort, this sense of safety for her, for me. And there was just a sense of um, contentedness or kindness. And I really, again, didn't need anything from her. I just was there and exploring and seeing what would happen without force or demand. I mean, it wasn't really so much even Shelley that was doing that. It was just this kind of force of kindness that was really available in that moment. And it was lovely. So when I explore this idea of selflessness, it makes a lot more sense now than it did when I was 10. <laughs> right? And it connects back maybe to the teaching of, of nature or anatta or not-self, which is kind of uh, feels complicated, but it's not maybe that complicated. If we can just tune into that natural that naturalness to the way these qualities emerge or emerge from our hearts 
we can see that we didn't actually have to do anything to make them happen, that the conditions were right and they just flowed, right? So that moment of being in the bed with my goddaughter as she was waking up, it wasn't like I was trying to be especially kind to her. There was just a, an element of love that was flowing and the conditions were right, and it just happened. It, it flowed freely. So this is a very simple way of talking about nature or maybe... That f- the freedom of the heart to express what's natural, what's naturally there, when it's not encumbered by a lot of I need, I want, I am, I can make, I can do, I have tos, right? Not a lot of I, not a lot of selfing there. So this natural expression of the heart, this heart that wants to naturally express itself and can do that and is capable of doing that. When the conditions are right, we can really see its beauty. You're on a roll. I I would ask, can I ask you a question? Okay. You know, in in this practice, especially in mindfulness, uh, the teachings also include teachings on the hindrances. What are the hindrances to selflessness as you see? as you see it, from the um, perspective of embodied selflessness. So say that one more time. What are the hindrances The hindrances to, to that feeling of selflessness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think one of the ways that I notice my heart getting tight or... Um, clenching you know that is when I forget that when I think I have to do it all on my own or that there's some kind of project I'm making out of love right when I forget that this is my job is really to be really be a curious student of love and do what I can do to cultivate love but to not be so demanding that I forget that I'm actually in relationship with my own life, in my own life, and with others. I think, you know, one of the ways that this practice is misunderstood, and I have to continue to remind myself, especially as a white-bodied person with a lot of privilege in my life, is that this isn't, it feels like a solitary journey. Like I'm doing this internal practice of cultivating the heart and, um, cultivating a, a habit of mindful awareness, but it's actually not for me. It's actually for you. And when I remember mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. when I remember that, life is really interesting. Mm-hmm. When I remember that, that my job is to claim you, no matter what, actually, because that's how I wake up. I wake up when I'm able to remember that we are tethered, that my awakening is tethered to yours. And if you're not free, neither am I. And this sounds really kind of theoretical, but it's, it's really not. In that moment, that felt sense in the heart of like, oh, like you said something beautiful. I want to acknowledge that. Or you've done something that's off, and I'm going to raise concern about that because 
my freedom and your freedom are combined. Mm -hmm. They're somehow connected. Doesn't doesn't that scare? That's kind of scary. To, I, you know, I'm thinking a hindrance might be not necessarily for you, but for myself and maybe others. That is some kind of vulnerability. That requires trust. When you talk about claiming people, you know, not uh, enslaving people, not overpowering people, but claiming us as yours. I could imagine that that would be a hindrance to wanting to feel that selflessness. Because mm -hmm. that's almost like um, that selflessness that, that we talked about years ago where I'm depleting myself, mm -hmm. right, to give it all to you. And I don't think that's what you're talking about. I don't think that's what this practice is about. But the words that we use, I think, trigger those kinds of um, thoughts and memories. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. That claiming for me, that word helps me not forget, but it could be activating for someone else. Mm. But I'd love to hear more your oh. thoughts about that. <laughs> but you, I mean, you're like on it. It's like so good, so good. I'm being enriched and nourished. I still struggle with vulnerability. That's, that's really the truth of it. Um, and trust. And like I said, I love this practice because it's so challenging. It's so challenging for me. Um, but after practicing for some years and reading and studying and practicing and engaging in conversation about the Brahma Viharas, I became convinced that um, this, is, this is really good for me. This is good medicine for me for letting go uh, and for opening and trusting um, and reorienting myself towards others, to, uh, toward the well-being of others. For example, sometimes I'm like that, but sometimes I'm not. That's why it's a practice, right? I'm working on it. Um, when we were sitting together, uh, this evening, I heard someone cough, and my my thought and mind my mind went to I hope they're okay. But then, after or during the brief um, um, I call it centering meditation on on the Brahma Vihara words, lots of people began coughing. Did you hear that? Did you notice that? Right, and then I thought. I can't attend to all this, right? Um, so it comes and goes. But I do believe that, okay, so I work as a pastoral counselor. One of the questions that comes up frequently uh, with clients is, I don't know what my purpose in life is. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what, the, what am I supposed to be doing. I've thought about that question a lot, not only in my own life, but and the lives of others. And one thing that I feel convinced about is everyone's purpose, and this is arguable, you can argue with me about this, everyone's purpose, whether they know it or not, believe it or not, is to advance civilization on a very basic level. 
we are here to uh, create safety for others, to make space for ourselves to grow, um, to collectively uh, bring others into the world, nurture them, move them into the next stages, and, and so on. So on a very basic level, we are here uh, to evolve um, and become more civil. And I believe the practices of the Brahma Viharas help us do that. It's not violent. Right? Um, it's amazing how life can flourish in the absence of violence. Uh, we are called to attend to needs, uh, needs for safety, for health, food, shelter, and so on. Um, even today, as I was reflecting on equanimity, I was thinking, man, that's hard work. I can just feel already the energy that it takes to be equanimous that subtle energy to pull yourself back and forth for centering. The advantage of that, of living an equanimous life, is that we don't burden people with our emotionality. Right? We are emotional systems, so I don't know if you are you feeling me? Okay, okay, right. We feel each other because we're emotional systems, right? And the absence, or at least working on not being jealous around other people's good fortune, happiness, joy, to be able to celebrate that with others is amazing. If all of our friends were practicing the Brahma Viharas, or colleagues, relatives, neighbors, and we were practicing it too, you can imagine what a beautiful world it would be. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced of it. And also, I don't think it happens with the snap of a finger. Because if any of you are like me, you got stuff to work through. <laughs> but no one's like me, I'm sure. You're all, you're all good. We got, I mean, right? Disappointments. Mm -hmm. The inability may, sometimes to read cues, other people's cues. Is, are you trustworthy? I mean, why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> I don't know. You know? It takes time, um, but I can say this, that I think now that I'm going on 60, the things that I used to be really concerned about in terms of self, just, I don't have those things anymore, right? All those things. Some of those things, but not all of those things. Um, and maybe developmentally speaking, at older ages, it's easier to practice the Brahma Viharas, right? So if you're young and you know you're still trying to get your groove on, get your profession down, you know, going up the professional ladder, uh, uh, raising a family, whatever it is that you know young people do, hanging out late at night, all that kind of stuff, the Brahma Viharas may not seem sexy to you right now, <laughs> right? And that's okay, right? That's okay. But just give it some, some thought that it might actually um, inform who you hang out with, 
what you're willing to put up with, what you're willing to contribute to in, in terms of nurturing authentic relationships. Um, these are practices that I think are, um, what can I say, can hold us the rest of our lives. I believe that. I appreciate, you know, just that acknowledgement that it's not easy to cultivate the Brahma Viharas, to really establish in our hearts this um, strength of love that guides us. Um, I actually think that, you know, it's, it takes a, a strong sense of self in order to be able to do the work of being vulnerable, like knowing who we are and being okay with who we are and feeling okay with others, feeling our, our okayness, you know, others who hold space or witness our, what feels like challenge or, <laughs> I remember it at a time in not, my life, not that long ago, feeling like I used that word broken, I feel broken, right? There was just so much pain in the heart. So in just being in company with others who are willing to see that, hear that, know that truth, and still love me, even in spite of myself, <laughs> right? My bad habits or whatever they are. So that kind of feeling secure enough is a process, a part of the path. I, I think that's true. Before maybe that step of um, yeah, uncovering this natural quality of the heart. Or maybe it happens at the same time along the way. But I definitely think, at least in my life, it seems like it's been a critical element just claiming who I am and being okay with that and feeling okay with that in the presence of others as a part of the journey. I'm going to ask people what they think. Okay. Yeah, let's ask, let's ask people what they think. What do you guys think? Thoughts, reflections, questions, comments, objections, anything's welcome. And we'll use the mic, hold it really close to your face so that we can hear you. There's a question, Lewis in the back. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, this is stuff I think about a lot. Um, and I appreciated hearing both of you reflect on it. And I think I'm at a place where what I find useful is this term that Thich Nhat Hanh came up with about being interbeings. And I contemplate that a lot, and I keep trying to witness it in my everyday life. Um, there is this thing about how 
from my perspective, everything really does work together. And um, I keep trying to uh, be aware of the fact that we're all in these various bodies and look a lot of different ways and I think the idea of self really does come out of how a lot of us have been acculturated and I know my sense of self has been tempered by a lot or shaped by a lot of fear and trauma and I feel like in my own life my capacity to love you know the hindrances come in those two forms usually and my practice keeps trying to tell me <laughs> that it's okay to drop the fear and keep experiencing what sometimes is a terrible a fearful sense that I fearful and beautiful at the same time that yes I'm con interconnected with all of this and everything and I'm not an isolated bag <laughs> that you know I depend upon the wind the water and for instance how the people that I love interact with me and what I actually get from their energy and appreciation and that I also need to drop the idea that I'm not worthy of that and keep giving back what I'm getting so that there's some kind of circular energetic circle of giving and receiving and we all deserve this affirmation and compassion and love. I'm thinking Thich Nhat Hanh would probably say, dare I um, speculate on what he would say, but I'm guessing he would say to what you just said, that you don't have to work that hard. That if you can work through the delusion of separateness, the giving and taking first of all, is one. And you are the river, the hill, the mountain, the person that we are, the people, we are all these things. And all you have to do is just be free of the delusion of a separate self. And there it is. And I think he would also say, even if you don't see it, it's th there it is. So if you can see it, that's even better. I wasn't sure if there was if there were more comments. Um, my name's Tracy, and um, I was just thinking about um, I've been doing this volunteer position and. Um, 
it hasn't come out of a place of obligation. And I was, I was just feeling some gratefulness about um, what I've learned in this community about Donna and how, um, and all the teachings that have been given freely. And when I first started years ago, I would feel that obligation. I would hear, um, really hear the truth of it um, when people speak about Donna, that it's really, um, it really is given freely. And, and so I'd really watch that and... Um, and I, ha- I just had some faith, I think, that, that there was truth in that. And then it did start to, it's really started arising out of me like this, just like I just wanted to, to give out of that place, out of the heart, I guess. Um, and, and so it just, it's, it's, that has built and then has, moved out into other areas of my life. And so um, I just really notice in, in different ways, like how much that nourishes me to just do that, to just give. Um, and it doesn't mean I'm not taking care of myself. Um, so it feels like a gift. Um, and I don't know where the obligation went. <laughs> like, I don't know where that went. You know, I mean, it's still there. It's not like it doesn't come up at times. But um, it's interesting to think about that. It just, when you were talking, Shelley, just about it arises, you know. There's, there's the work of it, of the just keep, going with the practice and then more and more it just keeps evolving and I'm just really grateful and I, this wasn't even what I was going to talk about <laughs> I was going to talk about fear but anyway that's another story <laughs> so I think that's it It's true, we never know what's going to come out of our mouths. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, this is a story you can make of it what it is. Uh, so I'm walking, doing walking meditation outside of my office. It's, on, it's in the east side in Highland Park. And I wasn't feeling particularly loving and feeling very vulnerable, pulverized would be a word probably. And getting to the end of a of a so I'm walking in the neighborhood, just in front of a house near my office, and I'm getting to the end and I just see this police car pull up. And uh the feelings are coming up now. It was such a feeling of assault. Cause I was in this deeply vulnerable place feeling connected and I was going through my own things and I maybe what was on my face um, those were not conditions that supported a feeling of love right uh, open-heartedness um, and 
I felt so offended. And it was it was this comic situation where I got mad because I'm trying to meditate. And he's like, what are you doing? Thought, you know, and I was like, but I'm meditating. And um, got really angry. <laughs> but the cool thing about it was on some level, I felt like that was exactly what needed to be said. I don't know why, but it was just, and I don't know why I'm telling this story, but it, it feels apt to the situation just in it. But it, the, what, what, has, what I have taken from that is I've been thinking about every marginalized person, and I'm getting emotional talking about it, and it's like I felt what it feels like to not be welcome. And I was like, oh, I get it. I think that's probably what you go through. And that's happening a lot. And it took a lot to actually want to go back and walk in front of that same old house. Because I don't feel welcome any, anymore there. And what do you do when that's your experience every day? I mean, I don't know how people who go through that. It's so... I'll stop talking. <laughs> so, uh, hi, I'm Justin. I appreciate what you're saying about uh, selflessness and the uh, connection to love. Um, so people aren't aware of the word agape in the hebrew or greek coin greek actually uh is called godly love which is translates to selflessness and it's uh really interesting because also in the hebrew version it's uh of what they call god which take what you will from that you know that's the word and um is i am so there's the self and then the selflessness, which is what they call God. So in a sense, it's a paradox to have a being or collective being, whatever you want to take it as, as being selflessness and self. And the Tao Te Ching also refers to uh, paradoxes as being closest to truth, which I really appreciate. And also, um, it, it really just aligns with that idea of the actualization, the experience of love compared to the conceptuality of love or how we think about love. And that, I feel, is what, uh, what is true love for me is really being in love compared to conceptually thinking about love, which... It's, uh, yeah, that's, that's something I contemplate and meditate on all the time. So, uh, definitely kind of felt that reflected back today. And I appreciate that. I was just thinking about what, um, when you were talking about selflessness and love, um, there are a couple of times, um, and you were, talking in terms of, you know, relationship with other, whether it was your dog or, um, or your niece, I think it was, or, 
Um, and I was thinking there are a couple of um, times that that happens to me and um, that it's not really associated with people, but more like um, it happens when I'm in a creative process. And so like if I'm playing the piano, for instance, I kind of feel that like it's me doing it, but I kind of feel like that love. Um, so that's one place that happens. Um, and the other place that it happens is um, when I feel that I'm serving my own mission on earth. And so um, yeah, you were talking about, you know, maybe if that mission is for everybody to evolve civilization. Well, I could, I was thinking I could feel that all the time because I'm, I feel that if I'm trying to practice that, um, you know, I could feel connected to that love inside of me and that selfness all the time if I'm trying to advance civilization. So it was just a couple of thoughts I had. My experience, um, it was not a long time ago, I was in a retreat walking by myself and I saw this tree with full of moss and I touch it and I feel like hugging it <laughs> and I cry and I feel love <laughs> and I was just looking, what the heck I'm doing? <laughs> but it's just, I was alone and um, that was just amazing and the feeling it was like finding my old friend. That is a feeling. It was. It took me a while to find that just intense love for that tree. It's just like sweet. <laughs> I have a question. Have a qu what is your name? John. John. Okay, John. May I ask you a question? Yeah. Okay. Do you have, do you think that it's possible that the historical Buddha was angry? I'll leave it at that. Yes. The question was uh, to John was uh, whether he thought the historical Buddha was ever angry. What do I think? Well. <laughs> Okay, so there's the Buddha before enlightenment, right? And the Buddha, well, not, there was never the Buddha before enlightenment. Okay, let me, let me correct that. Um, can you imagine, and I'm sure some of you can, um, having parents who do everything in their power to protect you from reality? 
because they don't think you are ready for it or can handle it. Um, or maybe um, you were raised entitled and you shouldn't have to know about these things because you'll never have to uh, encounter it. And then somehow you escaped your parents' home or neighborhood and you encountered reality for the first time at an older age in life. Hell yeah. That's enough to make one angry. But if you read the suttas, we don't see the Buddha as angry. There's no stories there about him being angry. He's always above that anger. Um, But what do we have to read about his early life, right? his development, um, his emotional development? We don't have anything. And so I I ask that question because sometimes I think... uh, in Buddhism, there is a how can I say a poo-pooing of anger. Anger. If you read about anger in the suttas, anger makes you ugly. It's just like the absolute worst emotion you could have. But if if you had had that experience, John, without anger, I would wonder about you. I, I really would. Like, what are you? Is your anger repressed? Like, you should be angry about that. Now, as a practicing Buddhist with anger, what, you know, then what do we do as, as practitioners with our anger? Yeah, that's what maybe makes us different than people who aren't practicing Buddhism. We say, well, you know, I'm not going to use this anger as a, as a uh, justification for retaliating, right, uh, violently against someone because we know, right, through wisdom practices, that makes the situation worse. Uh, Creates negative karma. And from a Taoist perspective, now we got a bigger problem than we had when we started, right? And then we have to work on that. Um, But I think to imagine that uh, before enlightenment there was anger, uh, might be a way to reclaim uh, anger if we've been repressing it. And then anger um, can also uh, inform decisions around advocacy, solidarity, empathy, and so on. So, There is actually a sutta where the the Buddha gets angry. Oh yeah, oh, and it's um, the story of his uh, cousin Devadatta, who tried to um, create an insurrection against him, and Devadatta was trying to uh, get the Buddha to retire, and he wanted uh, control of, of the sangha. And he wanted everyone to be vegetarian, and he wanted everyone to sleep outside, never have a roof over their heads, and always have rags. Uh, And the Buddha said, those are all optional practices. The monks can do that, but they don't have to. And Devadatta then left with a number of other, left with this sort of 
uh, ascetic group uh, and marched off. And at one point, the Buddha refers to him, to his face, as a lick spittle. And, um, and really kind of calls him on, on what he's doing. And the story then is eventually Sariputta and Moggallana go and they bring everybody back. But the interesting part of this is that someone, um, a learned person in the community or, or um, a person of some renown in the community who knew this sent his servant to the Buddha to ask the Buddha about right speech. And I, I'm, this is kind of a clumsy paraphrase, but the, he, it's, he's the, he comes to the Buddha and he said, so is it always that you should only speak kindly and not harshly and the things that we all talk about in right speech or not? Yes or, a yes or no question. And the Buddha said, that's a difficult question because there are some circumstances where it is important to, um, to prevent more harm to speak um, harshly and uh, and not the sort of, of um, right speech. And I'm saying this, paraphrasing this very ineloquently, but that honesty about it's not yes or no is right speech always always appropriate. And I said right speech generally is the appropriate, but there are some circumstances under which the conditions call for this kind of much harsher speech, and that actually um, made the person who was the messenger become a member of the Buddha's community, and then also the person who sent him. Um, but um, he, I think lickspittle is a pretty <laughs> angry kind of uh, elocution. <laughs> <laughs> in this great book called A Time to Stand Up. Have you read that? Tenisera's, uh, Tenisera's book. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Thank you, Patrice. <laughs> That's anger, huh? That's Buddhist anger. I said, That's Buddhist anger. Okay. My name is Michelle. I haven't been here for a number of years, and it is it is a blessing and really meaningful to to be here again and listen to this conversation. And um, I can't. So many things go 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 through my head, but but one of the one of the big things that's brought to mind is that there's mystery in this world. Right? We'll never have all of the answers. Um, all generations, all people have had the same questions, um, um, we're, but yet we're all on our own journeys. And all of our perceptions, each person's perception is, is, is limited. Um, and it's our emotions that help us to interpret our perceptions, right? And... And that's kind of magical in itself. The mystery is where, where the magic is, right? Because in spite of things that happen, wonderful things can happen in this world. And people can do wonderful things in spite of terrible things happening, right? And that's the magic. That's the mystery. And 
and and and none of us have the whole picture but coming together in community we find we can get additional um, per, um, perspectives additional um, ideas that increase our perspective and help reinforce that idea that everything is interconnected and together we're more than we are alone and yet we're all on our own journeys but together we're on a journey as well and we're here for each other and our emotions are are help us to interpret the perceptions that ha that um, happen to us and it's how we feel it's how we experience it's how we're we we be in the world in this state that we're in but we also have to remember to take a breath and um tr and pay attention to our emotions and ask ourselves what do they really mean right because having being angry um having fear you know all the all the primary you know basic emotions strong emotions happen for a reason like if somebody punches you right it's going to make you mad or angry we should take a breath and say what does this mean and how am i going to respond and what's going to happen if i respond in a, in a in a certain way right and so those emotions have have meaning and have purpose whether it's anger or or you know even hate or whatever but we have to say well this experience is telling me something but what is it really telling me right so i don't know and and i'm an um environmental educator for the last 18 years or so and the big thing right now is you know we've got to connect kids to nature or whatever or we're not connected to nature because you know we're urbanized or whatever and i and i just always have said or always have felt that you cannot not be connected to nature right but it's our perception our our our, our realization of that connection that that um, might be missing, right? But, but no matter what, you are connected, and we are connected and part of something bigger than we are. But taking that time to reflect and find those moments where we f really feel that connection is what is, um, is, is part, of our, so part of our mission, part of our purpose, I think. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.